0: This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell.
1: Hi, welcome to this week's Money & Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth. This week, I'm joined by Danny Hewson. Hi there, Danny.
0: Hello, Dan. It's been another bumpy week for markets, with a commodities rally not quite able to deliver the big market comeback some investors had rather been hoping for.
1: Yeah, we'll also be looking at a bounce in defence stocks and how utility companies have responded to Ofgem's new price control proposals. And I've been chatting to the fund manager of Odyssean, one of the few investment trusts not to have lost a lot of money this year.
0: Tom Selby's going to be here to talk through that pension triple lock pledge by the government and we'll also be chatting about why the battle for high street chemist boots ended with it being taken off the market for now.
1: There's also a new boss for Whitbread and we'll explain why the government's green savings bond has been a resounding flop.
0: So loads to get through, Dan. Let's start with miners because... They gave the FTSE 100 a heck of a boost at the start of the week.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've had some v- quite wild movements from mining companies in the last sort of couple of weeks. I if you go back last week, actually, you know, the, the performance was pretty terrible. Copper hit a 16-month low. There's lots of fears about a slowdown in the global economy. And of course, copper's fortunes are heavily tied to economic activity. We also had sort of ongoing tough COVID measures in China. And of course, if you think that anything China does is is really important for commodities demand because you know, it's such a big consumer of metals and minerals. So copper's actually in a bear market, which means it's down more than 20% from its recent peak. And sort of history suggests that demand often drops when you see a sort of a bear market happen in this metal. So if you sort of take a step back, it, I think over the last couple of years, there's been loads of hype around commodities, particularly the ones that are needed to help build electric vehicles and also for use in renewable energy projects. So I think people are also sort of surprised how quickly economies picked up after the pandemic. And so you've had sort of this big demand surge, which pushed commodity prices up. But I wonder if we're now going to see a potential pause in the sort of this stage of the commodity cycle. However, you know it is really hard to predict what goes on the commodities market. And, and at the start of this week, we did get a bit of a boost in sort of mining stocks because the G7 announced a five hundred billion pound infrastructure package to help developing countries, and it's sort of being touted as an alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative, where sort of lots of money is being pumped into countries around the world to fund projects from buildings to roads, and so. I think investors are sort of looking at us thinking, OK, there's going to be another, um, another party coming on and saying that like, here's, here's more demand for commodities. But you know, these things can move up and down. And I think anyone who is invested in the mining sector needs to understand that you're going to get big swings over time. And it definitely won't be a smooth ride from an investment perspective.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's quite a bit of sort of global rebalancing going on at the moment, a battle for hearts and minds. Um, and I, I think a lot of that probably, undoubtedly, has to do with what's going on in Ukraine. And um, the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has also led to another hike in stocks, defense stocks, which we saw um Tuesday, I feel like we need to do this almost day by day because there seems to be so many sort of fluctuations going on, depending on the bit of news. But all this was tied to a speech that Dispense Secretary Ben Wallace was due to give. And there was sort of, you know, as these things happen, you get a lot of leaks about what is expected to be said. And there were a whole load of headlines with the expectation that Ben Wallace was going to call for a 2.5 percent um, GDP amount, 2.5 percent of GDP to be spent on defence. So at the moment, uh, the UK spends around 2 percent, which matches the NATO target. But um, Mr. Wallace had reportedly written to the prime minister asking for an increase to 2.5 percent by 20. 28, saying, you know, that the most, the issue with Russia had created the most direct and pressing threat to Europe, and that it was increasingly clear that President Putin couldn't be deterred by threat of punishment or the costs imposed upon his people. Now, there's all sorts that's been going on today. Um, What did he put this particular 2.5% in a speech in, in an attempt to sort of Push Boris Johnson into a huge defense spending increase because, of course, Boris Johnson's at the NATO summit this week, or has it all been a bit of you know smoke and mirrors and nothing to see here move along? But what we did get is we got defence stocks rising off the back of that speculation. We had um, BAE Systems at more than 3%, Babcock and Rolls-Royce up more than 6%. And some of those gains have continued today. So if you look at the um, FTSE 100 top rises, BAE Systems is still up there because even if we don't see a huge announcement in the next few days, certainly the subject of defence is getting a lot of traction. And when you start to look at where money is going to be spent over the next two, five, ten years, clearly the situation in Ukraine has caused for a big rethink in terms of how we protect ourselves and protect Europe.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's interesting with defence stocks. So, you know, go back a couple of years, no one's interested in them at all. Everyone was thinking, you know, guns... Uh, and, you know, that sort of area is it's sort of anti-ESG, isn't it? Everyone was sort of going for, um, let's, do, let's inv- put money into environmental stuff or or things that are, um, you know, doing good social or, or good government standards. Uh, the idea of putting money into oil stocks, you know, defence stocks, tobacco ones, you couldn't think of it. But now, now this year, you know, some of those areas have sort of been actually the, the stronger sort of performing areas on the stock market.
0: And there's um, been a big shift you're absolutely right just in the terms of the way that people talk about these kind of stocks you know if you think about last year how we would have been talking about oil stocks you know all indication was that the big direction of travel was to clean gl- green technology and if you were putting money into oil stocks that company had to have you know a clear path towards net zero now the conversation has definitely changed, and whether or not that has to do with you know the share price or whether or not that has to do with a fundamental shift in the way people think about the world, uh, I suppose it's probably um, depends on the individual
1: yeah I mean one thing that we are obviously seeing we are seeing sort of quite wild share price um, movements as sort of said earlier on but um, what we're not actually seeing is lots of companies sort of having their earnings forecasts cut. And and this is something I think that if you've got money in the stock market, you want to be paying attention to. So if you look at the US S&P 500 index, it's down about 20% from its um, recent peak, but actually earnings forecasts have barely moved. And this sort of tells us two things. First, that stocks have derated. And by that, I mean that investors now want to pay a lower multiple of earnings to own those shares. So second, if the outlook remains gloomy in the coming months, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw another leg down for many share prices, if we actually will finally see earnings forecast cut. You just have to think of the situation. Central banks are raising interest rates to curb inflation. So that, in theory, leads to less spending by consumers and businesses. So that would have a natural impact on earnings forecasts; they'd have to be reduced. So if that does happen, then we'll obviously see share prices reduce as well. Now, interestingly, banks are on the few sectors to see earnings forecasts go up. Uh, and actually, we, we I've just been in the process of trying to get a guest onto the podcast to talk about that. So, so keep listening to the show each week, because whilst against all this doom and gloom, there are some sectors which have brighter prospects than Perhaps you might think that and we certainly don't want to be sort of um, constantly delivering you bad news each week on this podcast. We'll try and show you the good and the bad opportunities so you can sort of help make your own minds up about um, perhaps where to position your portfolios. <laughs>
0: We also, um, while we're talking markets, I just want to touch on the collapse of the sale of Boots the Chemist. Um, We've spoken about this before, Dan. I mean, obviously, when um, Walgreens Boots Alliance, which is the current owner of, of Boots the Chemist, announced that it was putting the business up for sale, there was a huge amount of speculation about who might be interested. And it did seem at one point there was going to be, you know, a huge bidding war. I mean, certainly a lot of people were talking about um, the the brothers that own Asda, the Issa brothers being potentially interested. Uh, Another was an Indian billionaire who was potentially interested, along with um, a a hedge fund that had obviously tried to get in and buy Asda, but, but got knocked back when the Issa brothers managed to take over. However, the sticking point did seem to be the price tag that Walgreens wanted from Boots. Lots of people saying that they wanted around £7 billion for the UK business and that the offer on the table was going to be at around £5 billion. Now, it has now said Walgreens that it is withdrawing the sale of the business for now, it's going to keep hold of it. Um, And a lot of that is, I think, down to the situation with UK retail. Um, It's been tough on the high street for an awful lot of years. And if you just think about boots as a business, it's it's really been battered by the pandemic because all of its travel stores were, were closed. And also, high street footfall, people haven't returned to the offices in the way that they were, and Boots has a huge number of stores on the high street. Retail parks, too, haven't been quite so affected. But the other issue here has apparently been finance. And Dan, we've spoken a lot about the fact that UK PLC has been really attractive over the last couple of years, because it has seemed relatively cheap. And I think a lot of people, I mean, did you expect that there would be a sale here?
1: Well, I think I think there's t- two issues here. What One is that perhaps UK UK businesses are cheap if they're on the stock market. But I guess if you're privately owned, valuation expectations might be a little bit different. But um, with Boots, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's, yeah, I can see the sense in sort of pausing the sale for now. But I think you have to think, well, what, what might happen next? If market conditions sort of pick up again, um, I would have thought that they would either try and rush through a sale while there's still the sort of some some interest, because it's clearly got a li- and they now have a oh, a list of people who have shown their sort of cards and you know sort of sniffed around the business. But equally, they could you know history would suggest companies that try and sell a subsidiary, which we've got in this case, Walgreens trying to sell Boots. If they if it doesn't get through the first time, the natural next step would be to try and float it on the stock market. Um, of course, Boots is a very well known brand. Uh, I certainly thought that there'd be lots of people interested, but equally, you know, you know as a, as a customer. Uh, although not not a very often customer, um, not a regular one, I find that their their stores are really tatty. The business just seems really tired. It's a really competitive market. You have to wonder what what is so special about Boots. And so um, I don't think that an IPO would get away too. Um, you know. You know like a bumper IPO. I don't think there'd be a massive surge in valuation because people want to get their hands on a slice of the business, but, um, you know, I think there's a bit more to it than boots. It's not, that's not a sort of simple sell. I know this is a really famous name on the high street, but um, you know, is it relevant today? That's the big question.
0: I think there are opportunities to make boots relevant because certainly in the wake of the pandemic, wellness has become big business Um, you know, health foods, and also those sort of um, the services that maybe the NHS can't provide in the same way because it's really under the cosh. There's there's complementary services, and, and Boots does a lot of that very well, you know, when you think about prescriptions and you think about eye tests and all of that kind of thing. And I think certainly when you looked at the Issa brothers, you could see a potential there to sort of mix a lot of their businesses, if they could get away with it, if the competition watchdog would allow them to. But you could imagine, you know, um, a boot store having uh, some Asda food in there, you know, a a Cafe Leon, which they also um, own. So, you know, you can stop off and and get something to eat in there. And that sort of mix, that hybrid retail offer, potentially could be really interesting. But, you know, in terms of, uh, there was speculation that if they you know didn't get a buyer that there there would be a bumper ipo financial markets are just so volatile at the moment and there's been a lot of talk that one of the reasons that this bid for boots hasn't come off is because it's become very difficult to get funding for businesses in the uk because there's concern that you know we could we are on on the brink of recession, you look at the growth figures that have been forecast for next year, and, and it doesn't look great. And then when you factor in the retail sector, you know, there are big flashing signs. So I suppose now the question for Walgreens is, can it turn Boots the business around? Does it have the gumption to sort of say, okay, we would taken our foot off the gas we were sort of you know we were closing the car door and we were leaving and now we've got to start the car back up again and plow ahead do they have that in them do they have the knowledge because the US market and the UK market are incredibly different beasts
1: yeah so we've got quite a lot to to sort of get into the podcast today so this I wanted to quickly mention that Whitbread is going to have a new CEO Domino's Pizza boss, Dominic Paul, has decided to return to Whitbread and become its new boss. Now, this is quite interesting because he used to run Costa Coffee, which was owned by Whitbread before it was sold to Coca-Cola. So Dominic Paul's only been in the Domino's job for two years. And to be a boss of a sort of a a company like that size for for a relatively short time, you'd sort of think, okay, what's happened? Has there been a disagreement or why is he going so soon? But I, I just think that this is this, you know, clearly been given this great opportunity to go back to business that he, he spent quite some time with and, and did incredibly good job in helping to build up Costa. I think that the current CEO, Alison Britton, says she's off, um, doesn't want to do full time executive life anymore. So I think this is, you know, I think Whitbread's come out um, very well here. You know he steadied the ship at Domino's, um, but perhaps, you know, he's looked at Whitbread and think this is a, perhaps a bigger business it's really strong in the hotels now. Perhaps he could do something with the boring old sort of pub arm, uh, pub restaurants and stuff. Um, but yeah, I just think it, it's a, it's a curious one. And um, you know, perhaps now looking at it in hindsight, he was the most obvious candidate to become the new Whitbread CEO.
0: There's a lot of movement at the moment at the top of um, some really well-known companies. When you think about it, you've got Whitbread, you've got Marks and Spencer, you've got Pets at Home. Um, I don't remember a time when we had quite so many changes going on, and I was reading a piece in the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago, um, and this is the FT City Networks warning that, uh, you know, by losing a lot of this talent at the top, a lot of this um, experience, as we head into recession potentially, The people who are at the top then haven't had the experience of of dealing with the downturn and and that could impact the way that, uh, you know, the UK economy ticks on over the uh, next few weeks and months. Before we talk about pensions and Ofgem's new price control proposals, let's hear from one of the few investment trusts not to have lost money this year. Dan, you've been chatting to the fund manager of Odyssean.
1: Yeah, I recently caught up with Stuart Wooderson, who took me through how he's been managing his portfolio, sort of the opportunities he's seeing because of the market correction. And actually, we were talking defence stuff earlier. So he he sort of explained to me why he was selling a defence stock just as the sector is coming into favour. So let's hear what he had to say. So Stuart, what's sort of interesting to you at the moment? Is it companies who are offering good growth in the future, but perhaps which have derated? Or is it? lower growth but lowly rated companies or just any type of company where good news has just been ignored by the market?
2: I think it's unusual at the moment because there's opportunities in every bucket. Uh, we, we felt 12, 18 months ago it was more interesting to look at self-help, recovery, lowly rated stocks um, but we've made a couple of investments over the last um, uh, eight weeks or so in companies that are Fantastic long-term compounders that have just been really thrown out with the general malaise that's impacted not just equities everywhere but particularly UK small companies. In terms of the the where the markets seen really strong de-ratings has been um, you know the out-and-out growth companies that uh, you know growth momentum investors tend to focus on. Now Ed and I still think a lot of those stocks are, uh, are still trading above value. So if they're really, really exciting growth tech names, we still think there's probably another 10 to 15% derating or maybe a bit more to come before they become really compelling. But definitely are are the things that interest us, the types of situations that interest us are much broader than they have been pretty much at any time since since we launched the trust four four years ago.
1: Well, can you can you name those stocks that you've been buying recently then?
2: they're, they're not disclosable, but they are they're um they're quite small holdings we've taken toeholds in. One of them is called Videndum, which is, used to be called ViTech, uh, And uh, the other company is uh, an overseas listed company called Stabilis, which is, uh, which is listed in Germany but has 100% free floats. They're both market leaders in a particular niche, um, and they have very, very high relative market shares. In the case of Videndum, in most of the areas it operates in, it's four to six times the size of its next competitor. In the case of starbulus which makes gas springs for um, for uh, automotive and industrial applications um, in the US, You know, UK and some Europe and North America, it's got a ninety percent market share nine zero. In Asia, it's got fifty percent market share, growing one percent a year. It's the market leader in um, you know power boot systems with thirty eight percent market share. The next guy's got thirty, and in its industrial niches, everything from Gas springs in your chair to things dampeners in in you know, aircraft overhead lockers. It's got 25 to 45 percent market share. In it's an niche leader. We bought it extremely keenly. The shares have derated massively, and we're really predicting quite a pessimistic scenario for that company. Um, you know, I think we bought it on a P of 11, and it's got virtually no debt. Um, and the earnings don't seem to be uh, forecast. Don't seem to be overstretched. So it's So there are definitely opportunities in in lots of different places at the moment. And these companies, we really like market leaders because times of inflation, market leaders can put pricing up and maintain margins. Uh, So, what do you think is going
1: to move share prices in the near term? Given the sort of the choppy market conditions, do you think it's trading is better than much better than expected? That's the only sort of catalyst that we could really expect to move those share prices higher.
2: I think a sustained rally in Broader markets is uh, is some time away because that it's really triggered by investment sen- investor sentiment changing and there's little I think in our minds that's going to change that sentiment in the near term. Um, I think on a stock specific level, uh, I think companies that generate above expectations probably might go up a bit, but I, I can't see a wholesale re-rating. I think it's largely down to uh, companies taking their own destiny into their own hands, doing spin-offs or disposals or alternative corporate activity. And we think the prospects of a corporate activity actually look pretty good at the moment. Um, from what we hear from investment bankers and M&A um, bankers, they... You might not expect lots of bids over the summer, but definitely, provided things are stable from here, um, expect more activity from September to Christmas.
1: So, I mean, you've, you've got euro money in your portfolio. That's just received a takeover bid. Um, I mean, there's been quite a few that you've had since the launch of the Odyssean Investment Trust. What What's the tally now for number of holdings that have had bid approaches in your portfolio? And, and why have you been so sort of, so good at sort of picking takeover targets
2: yeah yeah it's, it's been a very interesting period as you said down we've had 13 approaches for portfolio companies there's some double counting there because some companies have had multiple approaches or had you know, a competitive bid situation but to, your money takes to 13 to put it in perspective as you know we have about sort of between 15 and 20 stocks typically so it's a very high proportion of our portfolio that's attracted interest. I think pre, um, pre the Ukraine situation this year, we found the market was really polarized where there was a lot of money that had gone into high growth companies and anything that didn't tick the growth momentum box was really mispriced by the market. Even if they're good companies, so not just value basket cases, but actually just fundamentally good companies that just didn't tick the right boxes. And that a lot of those companies were taken over or had bid approaches uh, before. Um, We don't pick stocks because we think they're going to be bid targets or taken over. But our approach is really about finding good companies that are mispriced by the market where actually either the existing management team or somebody else can unlock more value. And it just so happens, you know, the current market environment in the last two or three years has been particularly fertile for this approach.
1: Yeah. I mean, you've got, Holding in Spire Healthcare. I mean, this is quite an unusual one that it had a takeover approach, but actually shareholders voted it down. I mean, we don't often sort of see that. What, what, what sort of the prospects now? Do you think another bid might actually come at some point in the future?
2: Yeah, very possibly. So, um, so for the for your listeners that don't know that well, it's the leading private hospital operator outside the M25, and. Uh, unlike many of its peers its business model is very much focused on private sector not NHS the NHS is about 20 to 25 percent of its business about 25 percent and growing very rapidly is self-pay and the rest is PMI private health insurance um, it got hit very badly in, in the COVID period as the government effectively commandeered its hospital um, network and then effectively just effectively paid its bills to, to keep the company going and the shares traded at, um, I think at the trough about 50p and the, the net asset value is about £1.80, £1.90 or so. So it became very, very cheap. And we didn't quite get to the bottom. We got we got it on the way up at about uh, just over a pound. Um, but the real opportunity of this business, the, the, the demand outlook as as your listeners probably know for private hostel is uh because because the waiting list is pretty good. They're very operationally geared business. So incremental value, incremental volume makes a big difference to, to the bottom line. And then on top of that, Spire itself has gone through a period of recent management change over the last few years and refocused really on improving uh, not just its outcome for patients um, and its quality standards, but also improving the efficiency of the business. So you've got a self-help situation in a company where demand looks pretty good. Um, why did Ramsey bid for it last year? This was the Australian listed group. Well, Ramsey are in the UK, but 100% of their business is NHS. And they were looking to actually, or they are looking, we believe, to get into the private sector um, in the UK to, to basically serve private, private sector uh, individuals. And doing that organically is gonna take quite a lot of time. So effectively, if you bought one of your peers and the sector that does that, you get a massive springboard. On top of that, the Ramsey statement indicated at the time there was 26 million pounds worth of procurement savings. Uh, and we think that there was a whole bunch of other potential synergies of putting the businesses together. That bid got voted down my shoulders because they felt very vociferously that the bid of around £2.50, which was increased from £2.40, didn't reflect fair value given the prospects of of, um, profit growth coming out of Spire. What's happened over the last few months, interesting, is Ramsey itself, an Australian listed business, has been bid for by KKR at a pretty attractive rating. And given KKR, one of the biggest private houses in the world, Historically knows the hospital sector as well. We used to own HCA, which some of your people might know as the private sector hospital operator in, within the M25. They know this sector very well. And I suspect they'll, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if they come knocking on the door Spire once they've completed Ramsey.
0: Yeah.
1: So you've also um, had a position in the defence company, Kemring. So I know that last September you you were sort of selling down You then built up a position again at the start of this year. But interestingly, when the Ukraine crisis unfolded, there's a lot of investor interest in the defence sector. But actually, at that point, you started to sell down again. I imagine it must have taken quite a lot of guts to to go against the market Uh, when everyone's looking at a sector that hasn't been in favour for quite a long time. Why, why would you why would you take profits then and you know is there a risk that actually if those shares kept going up and up and up that um you, you got out too early and perhaps your shareholders might sort of say what you know what on earth were you doing
2: yeah uh, look I, I think it's the nub of the way we approach investing dan you know we look we don't look to to beat the market what we're looking for is getting a, an absolute return on all of our investments about 15 percent IRR. And we always look for what we think a company's going to be worth in three years' time, compare it to today's price, and imply, you know, look at what we think the annualized return. And what you tend to find over time is stocks oscillate between being overbought and oversold. Um, and we find, you know, when we invest, we find a good company. If the stock doesn't move over time and we think the prospects are still good, we'll buy some more. If we think in the short term it gets pushed up above fair value, either because the market gets very excited about a particular company, or the market's buoyant. We tend to take some profits and, and top slice it. So coming into you're absolutely right. Coming into sort of August September last year, the market was very bullish on high growth companies, and we took quite a lot of profits on Camering. We've done very well over the three and a bit years we'd owned it at that point. Um, you know, we like the company. It's got a great management team, and it's got some great assets. But we felt that. We could deploy the capital elsewhere in the portfolio is slightly better. So we sort of half the position. And then as we came into uh 2022 and the market was quite weak, as people remember in January, uh, we bought back in uh to it. We had quite a lot of cash coming into uh January. And then in the in the foothills of the the start of the Ukraine, the stock derated quite materially um to about uh £2.50. And you know, in September it had been three pounds thirty, and we thought, well, actually that doesn't make any sense that Camring's de-rated over the, last, you know, over the last six months, given what's happening. And we bought back in in quite a big way. And, and then suddenly, uh, as you can see from the share price chart, at the beginning of March, people realized that Camring was the stock they wanted to own again. And the stock went up from about £2.50 to £3.50 in about two weeks. And we looked at that and said, well, you know, the whole market's fallen. <laughs> so everything else in our portfolio has got a lot cheaper. This stock has just gone up by you know 50, sorry, a pound over 250, so 40 percent. And yeah, the prospects of this company over the long term look really, really good. But there's nothing to suggest to us that it's going to see a sudden improvement in trading over the next 12 to 18 months. You know, on a five to ten year view, probably yes, very good for this company, but the the, the market's pricing too much too quickly. So we effectively took some profits off that and redeployed it into other stocks, which uh, instead of going up forty percent on the invasion had fallen twenty or twenty five percent. So it's just a capital allocation issue within the portfolio.
1: So Thanks Ed, so much again for your sparing the time to do this. Thanks, Dan. Uh,
0: Stuart Widdison, fund manager of Odyssean. There, okay. Let's talk energy now, Dan, because we've had an update from Ofjet.
1: Yeah, so I mean, utility companies never seem happy. When Offgem issues new price control proposals, and I think that's definitely the case this week, where we've got some new ones on electricity distribution. So SSE is one of the companies that will be affected by any changes to these price controls, and it says Offgem's proposals are tough and stretching. So I think you know energy providers would argue that they're under pressure to invest to improve infrastructure, make sure the sort of the network's resilient and that everything's been done to hit these net zero targets. But the regulator has had its eye on the amount of money that these companies make and whether their profits and dividends should be so high. So we, we get these sort of five-year um, price uh, agreements. And you know e- each time, you know, the regulator will come out and say, like, okay, this is what I think you should be making. This isn't sort of, um, you know, taking into account all these other factors and the utility companies always come back and say well you know we'd love to make a little bit more if that's okay so what's happening now is that they're going to go off and um, have some more discussions and we'll hear the sort of the final decision in December but you know politically this is a really sensitive issue so consumers are under lots of financial pressure from a sharp rise in energy bills and and of course they don't want to have to take on any extra costs to cover costs of more investment in the sort of the, the energy network so The regulators are going to be under a lot of pressure here to make sure that um, consumers are sort of being treated fairly, Uh, but also being fair to these operators. You know, they do have to go and do a job. Uh, And, you know, as a business, you are allowed to make a little bit on the side, but it's just a case of how much they're going to be allowed to make is the the key question here.
0: Because I don't know, have you had your um, bill go up yet? Has your direct debit gone up yet?
1: No, honestly, I look at it every month and get the email thinking, "Okay, here you go. What is it meant to be?" It's like, hang on a minute. I thought it's going up in April. I still have not had a change in my uh, in the direct debit. I don't know whether I should be proactive and get in touch because what I don't want to happen is to get this sudden massive surge in the, sort of the amount I have to pay. I'd rather do it sort of a little bit more each time to make it easier <laughs> to stomach.
0: Well, I you? I was feeling smug, I have to say, and then last week I got my email from my provider saying your direct debit is going to go up by a hundred pounds a month. Brutal. And I just think, well, that that's now, and yes. so then then look at the you know your um um your bills, and you realise that I, I was in debit only 40 quid but still at this time of year usually you're in credit by quite a lot because yeah. you're not using the electricity as much you've not got the heating on i'm like ouch yeah this is gonna hurt <laughs> <laughs> so the
1: rising cost of energy will certainly have been on the chancellor's mind when he updated us all on the triple lock last week so tom selby Asia Bell's head of retirement policies here so tom what did rishi sunak say
3: Thanks, Dan. Um, probably worth uh, just quickly recapping what the triple lock is for those who, who don't know. So, so the triple lock is a, a commitment from the government to increase the state pension by the highest of average earnings, inflation, or two point five percent. So, it's kind of a gold plating for state pension payments that was introduced back in two thousand and ten and has been kept in place most years. However, it was it was suspended for the increase that was applied in April this year because of the Cost of providing what would have been an 8% increase that would have been in line with average earnings for the for the for the three months to July of last year. So instead the state pension rose by 3.1%. So that took the full flat rate state pension, so that's for people who retire post-2016 to just over 185 quid per week. And the basic rate state pension, so that's for pre-2016 retirees to just over £141 per week. So There was some uncertainty in the air, given that the triple lock had been suspended for this year, that perhaps with inflation on the rise, the government would be worried about the costs and the Chancellor and the Treasury in particular would be worried about the costs of that pledge. But Rishi Sunaka and Number 10 have confirmed that the triple lock will be reinstated for next year. So all eyes will be on the inflation figure in September. So that's the figure that's used to calculate the triple lock for the following year. So we don't know what that's going to be yet. But clearly, given the way things have been going in 2022, that there's every chance that pensions pensioners are going to get a bumper increase in their incomes in 2023.
0: Now, Tom, this comes uh, just really as we've got all of these pay negotiations mm. going on. And you've had both uh, members of the government and also uh, the Governor of the Bank of England calling for restraint when it comes to pay increases. But the Chancellor said that raising pensions won't impact inflation in the same way that wage inflation would? Why? Uh,
3: well, that's a really good question. Um, and I'm not sure that the Chancellor himself fully knows that that will be the case. So Downing Street and, and Rishi Sunak are arguing that, that some pensioners are, are among the most vulnerable to cost of living Pressures. So obviously, there are some very wealthy pensioner households and very active pensioner households out there. But there's some of, some some pensioner households are not quite so active. And and of on average, as you get older, you tend to use more energy. So you tend to stay at home more more often. On average, you'll spend more money there for heating your home and cooking and all the rest of it. And so there's uh, in in all likelihood, you'll you'll spend more money on energy bills. And clearly, that's the big cost pressure that everyone's facing now. So the thinking is that if that extra state pension money goes straight into those higher energy bills, and if pensioners proportionally pay spend more of their income on energy than the rest of the population, then that shouldn't feed into inflation. Now, as I said, that's, it's not exactly an exact science and the the nature of the state pension means it's paid to everyone. So you'll have both wealthy and and poorer households um, receiving this bumper increase. And as, as you mentioned, it's Quite an awkward look, I think, for for the government and for a, for for a chancellor and for various departments that are involved in negotiations over public sector pay, where the argument is that if you raise pay by too much, then you'll you'll create a, a wage price spiral. So a, a tricky one for for the chancellor in the sense that he is kind of having his cake and, and eating it.
0: I love so, that. Tom, Not exactly an exact science.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Tom, just before you go. Um, mm. Quick thing on pension dashboards. What what is the latest on that?
3: Yes, yeah. So pensions dashboards, uh, a project that has been, oof, God, uh, I think about six years in the making, is slowly but surely edging towards reality. So, so a reminder for those who aren't familiar: the the idea behind pensions dashboards is that eventually you'll be able to see all of your retirement pots including the state pension as well by simply logging into an online dashboard so filling out some details about yourself you log in you'll be able to see all the various different pension pots that you have now that's that's deemed necessary primarily because people tend to have lots of different jobs nowadays and with each of those jobs you're potentially going to build up a different pension pot and as you move on with life you're not necessarily going to keep track of those pension pots you could end up losing them and not having them all in one place potentially being hit by higher charges than are necessary And it's also quite difficult to engage if you've got lots of different pension pots scattered all over the place so that's the the, the thinking is that dashboards will allow you to see them all and potentially consolidate all your pensions in one place and engage that the government's now consulting on some of the fine details on that policy and specifically how much notice pension schemes and providers should be given before dashboards go live to the public. So we're in the kind of testing phase of dashboards at the moment so making sure that all the nuts and bolts work and there's no problems and it's likely that we're we're going to get dashboards open to the to the public by 2024-25 so that's the the plan at least providing that all this background work doesn't uncover any nasties.
0: Thank you Tom let's finish with a little bit more doom and gloom because uh, I feel like that's the way we're rolling at the moment. Um, Premium bonds Um, obviously uh, a lot of people say Save using uh, NSNI's crowning glory because it's a way to sort of put money in and maybe, maybe you win a great big massive prize. However, of course, with the cost of living situation the way it is and, you know, a, a lot of people dipping into savings, uh, the latest figures um, show that more than 15 and a half billion pounds was pulled out by savers last year. Now, some of it's gone back in Um, 10 billion pounds worth of money has gone back in in the past tax year but one area that the government did want to really raise some money was something called the green savings bond do you remember the fanfare when that was announced Dan?
1: Yeah I did yeah you know there was lots of lots of um, sort of big hopes for lots of money going there but is, is that actually happened or not?
0: Well, the Chancellor wanted to raise about £15 billion from these Greens savings bonds. And um, at the launch, the three-year fixed-rate bond paid 0.65%, which was actually below the rate of an easy access account at the time. So you will not be surprised to learn that it didn't attract a huge amount of money, just £288 million. So it is very likely likely to lead to a review of exactly what went wrong because it's not like investors aren't interested in putting money into green causes because at the same time we had retail investors sticking in you know, at over 15 billion, 15.7 billion pounds actually into ESG funds. So, you know, clearly something hasn't quite translated, whether or not it was the rate, whether or not it was the way that it was sold to people. However, Rishi Sunak, it does look like we'll have to go back to the drawing board a little bit. Um, we've also, you know, got some... Uh, interesting news about another way that people who might be dreaming of making a bit of money at the moment are having to cut back Then,
1: Yeah, I mean, it turns out that people are buying fewer scratch cards than before the pandemic. And I think that's probably down to that, you know, people worried about how much money they've got in their pocket. So, I wondered whether, in in the pandemic, people were bored at home and they thought they'd try their luck. But now they're having to think more about their their finances. Now this is a bit unusual because actually, when when you've got sort of a gloomier economic outlook, actually history would suggest that people might actually be quite happy to sort of try their luck at winning money um to get them out of a hole particularly if they've got sort of financial problems uh, you know we've certainly seen that with in, in the sort of the broader gambling industry but um i think if money is tight at the moment it's probably best not to gamble it and certainly don't don't use up your last sort of pennies if they are needed to to pay the bills or to you know to cover your sort of food and, and drink costs
0: I um buy tend to buy the um scratch cards at Christmas time you know when you all sat around the table and you've got all your you know crackers and things like that I'll often buy one of those Christmas charity scratch cards for people to uh, to play with um never won anything at all <laughs> on a scratch card National Lottery though um I do like particularly you know when you've got that big hey, 138 million pound jackpot you know that that does make me uh want to play and i have won and i feel like i need to drum roll 30 pounds oh
1: nice that's that's uh 30 pounds more than i've won i think
0: so <laughs> <laughs> how about you tom have you ever won the lottery I've never, I've never won the
3: lottery. No, if I, if I, if I'd won a substantial sum, there's a chance that I'm, I, I wouldn't be appearing on this podcast. No, of course, of <laughs> course, of course, I would. I would. i come on here purely for the joy. Um, I admire I'd, I'd, my, uh, my my ex girlfriend from many moons ago. Her her mum was big into bingo, and she. Um, she won. I won't say the exact amount, but let's. She won tens of thousands of pounds at the gala bingo. I think this was about twenty years ago or something like that. So that was a, a significant story in uh, in Kendall and a, and a huge win for the family involved
0: my dad used to love um, betting on horses and he always put his mm. money on Frankie de Tori, and there was one particular race I think he won six races Yeah, I and that. people won a huge amount of money and uh, my dad got loads and loads of messages from people saying you lucky so and so how much have you made and he'd been busy that day no! and he had gone to the pub but he'd not put a bet on <laughs> oh no <laughs> yeah it stuck with him <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and on that note that wonderful note that is all we've got time for this week don't forget to get in touch with any comments suggestions or almost lottery wins that you've had uh, podcast at ajbell.co.uk
1: great thank you very much for listening catch you next
0: time before you go please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of aj bell or shares magazine